Well, I'm honored to be invited to preach in this wonderful church. It is, in my opinion, one of the great leadership churches in our denomination, and it has such a fabulous history. I remember as a child coming with my parents uh, on a Sunday morning when we would be vacationing in Montreat and hearing Dr. Alan Gardner preach. And then later in another season of time, it was always a pleasure to hear our dear friend Pete Peary on multiple occasions. And I always enjoy reflecting on his leadership here and elsewhere. And in more recent years, Kay and I have enjoyed being here, appreciating Patrick Johnson's leadership and also the leadership and presence of his colleagues, David Germer and Shannon Jordan. And so it's a terrific pleasure to be here today. Thank you for your hospitality. <clears throat> I'm reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 40, verses 16 through 38. Listen for the word of God. <clears throat> Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was set up. Moses set up the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put it in poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the covenant and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the curtain for screening and screened the ark of the covenant as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain, and set the bread in order on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the curtain and offered fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also put in place the screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set up the court around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the screen at the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each 
stage of their journey. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, uphold me that I may uplift thee. Amen. Who knew that God, the creator of all that is, the drumbeat beneath and above all of human history, the ground of all being, the one who births us into life itself and ultimately receives us back someday, who knew that God is also, believe it or not, an architecture geek? Look at this text that I've just read from, at the, from the book of Exodus, and, and you can catch a vision of God the architect. For as if the one who brought the world into being and stays close to its joys and needs and tragedies, as close as your own breath and the hairs on your head, as if this God has nothing else to do, God spends something like 13 long, tedious chapters in the book of Exodus preoccupied with dictating the details of every single square inch of a tabernacle, every square inch in which when it is finished, God will be present no longer on some distant, smoky, mysterious mountain, but instead in the tabernacle in the very midst of God's people. Who knew that this God cares so much about the architecture in which the presence of God dwells? Especially when from the point of view of the children of Israel, God has hardly dwelt with them at all as they've been on this journey. Instead, as far as they are concerned, God has a flawed sense of direction. God has an indifference for their desire to get from Egypt to the promised land as fast as possible. God has a penchant for neglect often when it comes to the immediate provisions of their needs. Food, water, tummy rubs, bedtime stories. Why does God want to dwell with them now, they pout, given that God is so remote and so diffident? And why, when the world is going to hell in a handbasket, is God so interested, for heaven's sake, in architecture? Moses, as you remember from what happens earlier in the book of Exodus, spends a good bit of time on top of that mountain with God, getting a crash course in liturgy and architecture, and getting all the blueprints for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstand and the curtain and the framework and the hangings and the vestments for the priesthood and the bronze basin and on and on and on, chapter after chapter, all the meticulous detail. For example, when Moses was up there, God said, you shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide and a cubit and a half high. You shall overlay it with pure gold, make a molding of gold around it. You shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of the legs. The rings that hold the poles for carrying the table shall be close to the rim. 
You shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and the table will be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. And you shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me always. Everybody got that? <laughs> and that's just one table. No wonder Moses is up there for so long. But down at the bottom of the mountain, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Because while Moses is up there on top of that mountain talking to God, the people at the bottom of it are getting out of hand. He's been away too long, they say, so long that they are beginning to forget about Moses and turn to Aaron and ask him to give them the worship that they want. They want something comfortable, something that won't ask too much of them. Preferably, preferably they would like a big screen and a sound system and maybe a light show and some popcorn. They want something that will entertain them and make them happy. Contrary to what God is on top of that mountain teaching Moses, this doesn't take much. Down at the bottom of the mountain, all the folks have to do is build a fire and just throw in their rings and necklaces, and Aaron makes a golden calf. When God finally looks down and sees it all, it is a deal breaker. What's at stake, after all, is that all of that tedious detail up on top of that mountain, chapter after chapter of the endless measurements and precise instructions, the blueprints, the dimensions, the liturgy, all of that has to do ultimately with what goes on in the realm of the holy, and it takes time to discover that. But the golden path, calf, doesn't take time. In two verses, we get the whole story. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears, brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. If you're looking for a cheap, homemade God, if you're looking for worship detailed, tailored to fit your taste, you probably don't need an architect. And when Moses comes down off the mountain and asks Aaron what he was thinking, Aaron didn't have much to say. He said, I said to them, he said, whoever has gold, take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Not quite sure how it happened, he said. I just threw it in the fire. Out came this calf. Didn't draw any plans, didn't make anything, just into the fire and out came this calf. But it takes time to fathom what goes on in the realm of the holy, as Moses discovers when he and God take up the conversation on that mountain once more. I love the way Walter Brueggemann puts it. While commanded by God, he writes, the work of constructing a house for the holy is human work, and it must be done well. The specificity and concreteness of the work protest against any tendency to make communion with God easy or spiritual. This God needs a place that is reserved precisely for this holiness. The creation of such a place, moreover, requires a combination of passion, generosity, competence, and devotion.
when I was in seminary, it was during a time when it was kind of cool to discount the beauty of churches and the beauty of their worship. And I took that dismissive bias with me when I went to the first church I served. Over the years of that church's life, starting in 1838, the village became a suburb and the sanctuary became a kind of icon, federal-style building, original pews, rippled antique clear glass windows. The place dripped with elegance, the always polished brass cross on the communion table, the beautiful banners designed for each season of the year, a carved pulpit, a brass lectern, and an ancient font in the back. They were lucky to have me because I was going to change all of that. <laughs> I was there to fix them. One Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour, I popped into the sanctuary to make sure that it was all ready for the next hour of worship. There was this lady from the chancel guild who was fussing with the flowers. Ted, she said, can you help me? I can't decide where these flowers should be. If I, if I put them on the center of the communion table, they fight with the cross behind it. But if I put them on the pedestal near the lectern, uh, they seem to be distracting the attention from the seasonal banner on the other side of the pulpit. Now, I could get some hymnals and stack them up so that the cross can be seen above the flowers in the middle of the table, but then the choir is less visible. And then again, I could, oh, it doesn't matter to me, I said to her. It doesn't matter where you put them, I said. Nothing in this place is sacred. <laughs> I had a point, but she wasn't buying it. <laughs> Young man, she said, I've been in this church all my life. My children were baptized at that font back there. They knelt in this chancel when they were confirmed. My husband walked my daughter down that aisle when she was married, and then too soon they carried him down that same aisle on the day that he was, uh, on the day of his funeral. And I will have you know, she said, that as far as I am concerned, everything in this space is sacred. I've learned since that moment that people get that way about the places in their lives which host the holy. And by the way, before Exodus is over, these Israelites get focused, at least for a defining moment, on God and on what delights God when we worship and serve well. They throw out the golden calf and with it the notion that worship can never be easy and self-indulgent and filled with the fluff of what entertains and makes us happy. But there is finally both a problem and a possibility when we build things to host the holy. The problem is the way in which we can attempt to take our buildings and our worship that we conduct within them and use them to try to fix in concrete something as ultimately uncontainable as the presence of God and thus limit the holiness that we would offer to host. That's the problem. But the possibility lies in the fact that at the end of the book of Exodus, this 
gorgeous architectural masterpiece that they have finally constructed is, are you ready for this? Is portable. It's not fixed. No foundations and footings running deep into the ground like the roots of an ancient oak. No, this is a vehicle in which the God who is constantly on the move picks up and moves alongside God's people and sometimes beyond them. Everything about it, the tabernacle, the altar, the basin, the poles, the priests and their rituals, everything is portable. The sanctuary is complete, and now Israel is waiting breathlessly to see the dweller from whom the tabernacle is constructed. When the cloud from on top of that distant mountain finally descends upon that tent of meeting, the astonishing bottom line of it all, which is good news for all of us in all of time, is that God takes habitation among a band of wandering exiles in the wilderness. Israel now has a centering place and a reliable and abiding presence. And because of this presence, the company that worships in this holy place will never be able to stay put, but will always be on the move. They're going to carry it around as they move forward into the promised land. Unlike other gods who might be frozen in one place, one ideology, whatever, the God of the Bible is the God who travels with, who dwells with God's people. So that in the end, maybe, the problem and the possibility inherent in hosting the holy are held together in a kind of creative tension within our big God, the one who is marked by the twin attributes of abiding presence and traveling fidelity. In what sense is this sanctuary mobile? And it's not that the walls are on wheels. It's not that you can pick up this place with long poles and carry it. It's not that when you're ready to strike camp, you can fold up its walls and pack it all away in the back of a truck. It is, though, that the holiness that makes this place a sanctuary is uncontainable and always on the move, always pushing out in front of us and pointing the way toward tomorrow, a tomorrow that we have not yet imagined. Nowadays, it's not just the wilderness of Sinai in which Israel is wandering, but, the actual, but actually the whole world is a wilderness, a frightening wilderness. We know this now in this decade and in this century, better than we've ever known it before. And it's a place of threat where you can't survive on your own. For these are the, day, are the days of global warming, huge storms, the depletion of seas and lakes, horrendous temperatures. But it's also the place where you learn to survive by depending on the holy. Today in the wilderness, we face survival questions that the Israelites could never have imagined. That is why, by the way, that it's important for this church to continue its advocacy work on behalf of the climate globally and locally. And in our activism in this arena, the sources of survival are the very same ones 
as Israel depended upon when it was wandering in the wilderness, namely the presence of the holy. That presence is here too. I can feel it. Before my family and I moved to Austin 21 years ago, I served the Central Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. Its centerpiece was an old Victorian Gothic sanctuary that sat directly across the street from the Georgia State Capitol next door to City Hall, a block away from the county courthouse. It was a holy place surrounded by the turbulence and chaos of a city. There was a season of time there, about 13 months, when we were decorating and restoring the splendor of the place, much like you have done here in recent years. One day, long before the project was finished, I happened to be walking through the building, and I decided to walk into the sanctuary. The pews were stacked up as high as they could be stacked up along various walls. The pulpit furniture was stored somewhere else. Dust was everywhere. It was a construction project. And there was a giant hole where the chancel used to be, and workers there were reinforcing the floor beneath that space so that in time, the structure could support a marble chancel in that area. I stopped to talk with guys constructing all of that, and while we were talking, one of the workers casually lit a cigarette and began to smoke. He was standing there smoking in a sanctuary, a sacred place, and I can't believe this now, but I heard myself say to him, would you please put that cigarette out? He was a big guy. And I was a little guy. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, look, man, it's just a building. I still remember the tightness in my chest and the tremor in my voice when I said, it may be just a building to you, but to me it is the house of God. So will you please put that cigarette out? Well, at the end of the day, maybe we were both right. Maybe the fact of it is that it's just a building. And it's the house of God. And that those two things display that there are two truths that are simultaneously true. Sometimes in our church conflicts, we get scared that God may not be content to dwell only in the holiness of places like this. We sometimes note that God has been sneaking out of places like this in order to get involved with the world beyond. And if there's a lesson in this insistence on God's part to dwell in this place, as well as to roam every inch of God's world, then let us praise God that this place is not ultimately an object for worship, beautiful as it is. No, finally, it's a vehicle for worship, just like that tabernacle that emerged from all the blueprints and all the lectures up on that mountain. For up there on that mountain, it was ultimately made clear that our God is always on the move, by day and by night, before our very eyes, and within this place and beyond, at each stage of our journey.
In the name of God, Creator, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.